welcome to Season 7 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that's dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I am joined by the fabulous Amy Noel Green, who is a writer, speaker, and poet who also creates narrative video games that focus on personal and innovative stories. Her titles with numinous games include That Dragon Cancer and the upcoming title Area Man Lives, a virtual reality mystery that allows the player to speak out loud to the characters within the game. Amy is also mother of five, lives in Loveland, Colorado. I love that. And her TED Talk has been seen over a million times. Welcome to the show, Amy. Oh, thank you so much, Anita. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to share how I came to know about you and the video game that you and your husband co-created. I'm working on a book right now, and there's a chapter devoted to sort of the intersection of empathy meets technology. And of course, there's a little bit on video games, kind of the good, bad and ugly, right? And I am not a gamer. The only video game in my entire life that I have played before I downloaded yours was um, Tetris. Uh, back in the, you know, whenever that came out. Um, So I really kind of have this uh, bias that video games are sort of antisocial and some of them are truly antisocial and misogynist and violent and all that kind of stuff. And then I came to understand that there's this whole kind of generation of video games coming up the rank that are really pro-social and are called even like empathy games. So in an article, that's how I came about that dragon cancer. And then I realized that there was just this, this guy named Markiplier out on YouTube, like one of the biggest names in all of YouTube history, who did a two hour gameplay. I watched it, I wept, then I watched your TED talk watched and wept some more. We'll include the link so people can see both. Um, I guess where I want to start is in your TED talk, you say something so um, touching. You say people have to prepare themselves to invest emotionally in the story that they know will break their hearts. So in your words, um, could you describe what that dragon cancer is all about and then why you also bristle at the term empathy game? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's your dragon cancer is what we consider to be an autobiographical video game. Um, it kind of blurs the line between documentary and kind of magical realism in a video game. And it's the story of our family as our third son, um, experienced a terminal cancer. So he was diagnosed with cancer right after his first birthday and, you know, everything was, was going along and we thought like, okay, we'll just, this is hard, but we will get through his treatment. And just before he turned to, they told us his, his cancer was terminal and that he would die. Um, he ended up having more time than we expected him to have. And there were, there were all these small miracles along the way where we just thought, I know he's supposed to die, but he's going to live. Like all these bizarre things are happening. And it was it was just such a strange place to be in as a family, to, to be living with a child, you know, would die, but living as if he would live and expecting him to live. And so with the extra time that we were given with him, we started to think about how do we share 
what this experience is like, because until I had a son with cancer, that just felt like something that could never happen to me. Like it's one of those things that you go, oh, well, that's, those are cancer families. And that's a cancer mom as if it's just fundamentally a different type of person that these things happen to. And I think we do that to, to protect ourselves that, that we have to think that the hardest things in life somehow we're immune from. And until they happen to you, you kind of live in that, that space where these are bad things that happen to other people, but I'm protected. And so I guess moving from that world where this type of tragedy could never affect my family to saying, oh, we are that family. This is happening to us. Um, made us want to think about how do we share the story? How do we, how do we help people understand what what living like this is like, because we didn't understand it until it was us. So um, that dragon cancer is just kind of us telling the story of what it's like to be a family with a child with, with cancer. And so, um, you know, the, even the mechanics in the video game, we were thinking through, how do we describe what this felt like? Is there, is there a, a mini game you could play that would help you understand what it's like to to, to so much want to win and to recognize that you can't. We talk about cancer a lot in terms of, oh, she beat it and she's a survivor and she won. And um, we use all this like victory language, um, which in some ways makes sense and in other ways kind of minimizes the fight of people who don't, don't survive cancer. And so there's things like that, just themes that we played with inside the metaphors and the mechanics of the game um, that would let a player, you know, kind of like try to win and understand what it was like to not have the agency you hoped you'd have or to, to, um, to not be able to find the right solution or make all the right choices. Because some of that was, was the most difficult part for us is we wanted so much to believe that, that if we could just solve this puzzle, like if we just found the right treatment or the right, you know, it, you're just looking for a way to somehow beat the boss when the boss is cancer and we couldn't do it. And so um, we shared a video game that, that let people kind of feel those things. And, and so ironically, even though, you know, people sometimes hear our story and go, oh, cancer is not a game. That's not okay. Ironically, it fit fairly well because we wanted to win and couldn't. And so to put someone in a video game, they get to experience what it's like to want to win, but we very rarely experience what it's like to not be able to. And so that's kind of what the, what the game did. So why do you suppose gamers themselves have so loved this game and, and, and even, you know, people who are, you know, game critics, why is it so acclaimed uh, in your opinion? Yeah. Um, Sometimes we wonder that ourselves, um, you know, we, it was one of the first video games my husband and I made together and, and numinous games in general. Um, and so we can look back and we could, we could analyze it technically and we could, you know, we could look at it and go, oh, we would do this differently. And it has these flaws and, oh, it's a little clunky here or there. Um, but in the end, it wasn't about that. Like it wasn't about it being a technical masterpiece, um, I think people love it because we were just so raw and transparent in the process. Um, I think we just kind of gave our whole selves to this game and, and we shared what it really felt like, not what you think it feels like, or not what the movies tell you it feels like, but the thoughts you really have and, and the emotions you really go through and the desperation you, you truly feel. And I think the other reason it moved and touched so many people is I think there's a lot of people who, 
who know someone who is going through a terminal illness or have lost someone to a terminal illness. And we tried very intentionally to leave a lot of space within our game for it to be, yes, our son Joel's story, but also like to, to make room for other people's stories and, and to let you kind of think about it on your own terms and to kind of bring your loved ones on the journey with you. So, you know, I just had an aha moment while you were saying everything because I'm not a gamer. So I was say, why would, why would a family be inspired to talk about such a hardship through the modality of a game? But as you're talking about it, when you, you started to describe the game in, at the beginning, you were saying it's autobiographical. Like I would definitely understand why I would read an autobiography and pull it off a bookshelf and read it and cry and weep with the, you know, what the story is. It's just a different medium. And it's a medium that I'm not used to, but obviously there's a space for people who do game to want to experience sort of that raw emotion. Yes. Um, We talk all the time about how it's just a, a younger medium. It's a newer medium. So there are things that we have really explored and even overexplored in other mediums. You've seen it a thousand times and you bring it into a new medium and it feels totally new because of the way, I mean, people will talk about the medium as the message. And so, you know, you go, what can a poem express differently than a book? And what can a film express differently from a book? And you could, you could read a poem and listen to a song and watch a movie and read a book all on the same topic, but the strengths of that medium would draw out different aspects of, of the theme in really unique ways. And, and games are the same way that you can take topics that have been explored in other ways. And just the way the medium tends to highlight certain elements of it, you, you kind of get a different peek into something. Um, and part of that's because the players in the experience, they're making decisions there. I mean, a lot of people like you have experienced the game just by watching someone else play it. And we understand that because of the quote you started with that, that it takes a lot to, to really choose to invest in this game. And so watching someone play it, it's just one step removed. And maybe that's a little more emotionally comfortable for people, but I really think there's something different about being the person in the game, making the choices. I think it hits a little differently. I think you feel it just a little bit differently. And that's just one of those things about the medium itself um, that, and I think it's why so many, so many people in the younger generation, especially love video games. And if they're going through something difficult in their life, they want to find a video game that touches on that and experience it. And I think it's because it allows you to fully enter the game as yourself and make your own decisions and, and, and just experience a narrative head on. Huh. I've just done a Rubik's Cubes click, right? Where it's like, why have, been, why have I been so hard on video games all this while? So there's like actually two sets of questions that like kind of off script that I want to, I want to pursue here. One, just to, t- I guess, not tie up what we've just been talking about, but you know, right now, as we're taping this, we're in the second month of the Ukraine war. And what I'm starting to see on my social media feed is incredible art. Right. So I'm seeing, you know, somebody will take out a violin and be playing on the streets of Kiev and then you'll have murals that are popping up. And so I just I sense that, like, you know, through all of the the heavy tragedy of the war, that people are yearning and reaching towards art and have been forever. So I just I, I, I think what you are suggesting is that video games can be another form of art. 
Absolutely. Yes. It's like just a different paintbrush you can pull out, you know, like it's, it's, it's absolutely an expressive medium. If you approach it that way, not everyone does. And, um, you know, like many forms of art, what's commercial is going to be the main thrust, you know, of, of what's created. And so, uh, commercial films, uh, are, produced, you know, with so much bigger of a budget and so much more frequently than those kind of indie films that are, are really meant just to express a feeling. And um, I think games are, are the same way that it can absolutely be this expressive medium and, and can be art. It just depends on how you design it. And those games as art may not be the most commercial art, but I would say that more and more there's a generation that wants those experiences from their video games because they grew up with games, but they grew up, you know, so you don't want the same experiences that you loved at nine and 10 and 15 and 20 as a 40 year old, as a 50 year old, as someone um, with older parents who is experiencing harder things in life, you want that medium to grow up with you and it has. So I think the audience is, is starting to look for different types of experiences as well. Uh, so you and to pick up on a thread that we I mentioned earlier, you are prickly around the term empathy games. Why? Why is that? I am just a little bit. Um, so I understand using the term empathy games because it's it's trying to define a genre. And in video games in general, we we tend to have a little bit of a difficult time defining genres. And I. Th- that's because it's a newer medium. We tend to think of the games according to the mechanic and not necessarily the content. Um, And that's okay. And and we'll see how it kind of all settles out over time. Um, But sometimes we use this term empathy game um, and it, we inadvertently create these experiences that say, oh, I'll show you what it's like to be homeless in my homelessness simulator. But because it's a game, um, we can very easily give someone an experience in a video game that instead of really stirring up compassion in people and saying, oh, like, I feel like I understand what it's like to walk alongside someone who is homeless. Um, And having walked alongside that with them, I have a new compassion for what that experience is like. We actually say, you're the homeless person. Now see if you can be the best homeless person you can be. Um, that, That gamification of things. And so when you take a hard situation and say, well, you're an immigrant, but can you be the best immigrant? And the games don't mean to do that, but inadvertently it can have that effect that in the end you go, oh yeah, I mean, it is hard to be poor, but actually like I kind of figured out the right like system and the right connection and I mastered it. And then you end up inadvertently having less empathy for people because you think, well, had I just, had they made different choices like I did in the simulator, it just can have like, it's not that they can't be done well. It's that it's so easy to do them poorly and to, in the name of increasing empathy, inadvertently make people less empathetic because they think, well, if it's just about a series of choices, I can master those choices and do it better. When, when hardship isn't like that, um, the sorrow and the grief that we all experience is so personal. It's so rarely about comparing my grief to your grief, you know, like, I think it helps us to share those stories because we recognize like, oh, I'm not alone. Like suffering is so universal. This makes me closer to you that you have suffered in some way and I have suffered in some other way. But when you start to say, oh, my suffering is less than yours or my suffering doesn't compare to yours. Or when we start to say, well, maybe if I'd handled it a little differently, all of those things, I think 
sort of fight against the the ways that grief and suffering can bring us together and do some really positive things. So um, yeah, sometimes I think when we start to categorize games as empathy games, um, we encourage people to design in ways that might be a little bit irresponsible, but if we focused instead on compassion, I think sometimes that's just the difference of, um, like in our game, um, you were never Joel, you never really played as Joel, I guess a few times in some of the mini games, actually, I'm correcting myself in some of the mini games you played as Joel, but for the most part, you were someone in the scene who was around Joel, who cared for Joel, who was with Joel. Um, and so just being intentional about who you're asking the player to be and who you're asking them to embody and the impact that might have on them, you know, psychologically on, on, on their empathy and their, their feelings about the situation, if they're being asked to embody the suffering or to observe it and to help with it and to walk alongside it. Hmm. So uh, as we think about the future of gaming and what, you know, the metaverse will bring about and even your, the new game that you're working on kind of sounds like it's really reaching into uh, the future uh, where you're, you're engaging with the characters. Um, are you excited and hopeful about what the next generation of games could be like from a pro-social perspective? And is there an echo of some things that you're concerned about? Sure, this is a great question. Um, I would say my husband is totally a, a future, a, like a tech optimist. Like he's, he's very much a futurist. He gets very excited about what technology can do. And so that tends to rub off on me. Like, of course, anything that, um, that we create using technology, we can create the good version and the bad version. And we often do. And oftentimes the bad version comes out first. Like we typically use our technology to create things that serve our vices before we create things that serve our humanity. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about the metaverse because I think there's so much it can do, um, to unite us and to, to point out the things that are similar, even in terms of, of disability, like we so often kind of, maybe without meaning to define what is most human by like what is most able-bodied, like the most functioning, like human pieces of us. And in the metaverse, I, I don't think that's going to matter as much that we're going to have more and more things that, um, that don't look like our physical body and that make up for some deficits we might have and that change the way we all interact and interface. And I think that we can learn a lot from each other by choosing to interact in new ways and interface in new ways. And, um, it's, it's like you hear about the experiences like dining in the dark where we, we all go and we have a meal and complete darkness and you get to know people without seeing them. And, and it's intimate in a different way than having a conversation with a stranger just in the light is. And, and I think the metaverse may be like that for a while that you go, what is it to, to interact just through play? What is it to interact just as avatars? What is it to interact um, using uh, just our thoughts and not our physical manipulations? Like, I just think there's interesting things to explore. And I think we will learn more about each other by, by having these new ways to, to connect with one another. So fascinating. I think I have to, I, I think I have to spend more time around gamers to hear that because there, there's, it, there, it just seems like, you know, given that it's a money-making platform, like that, and we already see what's happening with social media, how it's pulling people down these rabbit holes of algorithms and creating great polarization, that there's just this gut feeling like a sinking gut feeling of, well, what does it mean when we're in the metaverse? But 
you know, here you are describing the possible, the potential of it. It's, it's anyways, very eye-opening. Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Here and International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Can you tell us a little bit about your new video game and what that's about? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Airy Man Lives um, is coming out in virtual reality. So absolutely one of those games that you you do have to play yourself. You know, like it, it's not an experience you can play with another person because you are wearing a headset. And we think about that a lot, that it's very easy to say, oh, virtual reality, isn't that the most isolating type of gaming? Because, you know, like you're all boxed off in your little headset and your little controllers. Um but we care so much about creating experiences that are intimate and that are personal and that are shared. And, um, so this, this game, I think tries to push the envelope there a little bit. And, and I push back a teeny bit on, on that because I say, oftentimes I will read a book alone and then sell it, say someone, Oh, have you read this book? Can we talk about this experience? And, Oh, you should read this piece too. And we should discuss. And I think that's what games can and will do also is that you may have a singular experience, but then how you talk and share about it becomes the social piece of it. But Airy Man Lives um, is coming out in virtual reality. And the whole premise is that it is your first day on the job um, as a fill-in DJ for a, a tiny radio station on the Oregon coast. And um this little town that this radio station in is, is, is very weird, but um, you are just doing your job as a DJ. And so you're, you're talking on air because you can talk to the game. And so you're recording scripts, you're talking to your producer and he's talking back. And then eventually someone starts calling in and they tell you that um, they have a mission that they're on and they believe you're leading them. And so they've been listening to everything you've been playing on air and saying and doing as clues to lead them on this, this mission that they believe they're on. And so from there on out, you kind of have to start to try to figure out like, who is this guy that's calling in and wanting me to help him? And, and should I be helping him or should I not? And if I am supposed to help him, what can I do inside this radio station that will impact the world outside the radio station? Um, and we love it because it's, it's super funny. It's very quirky. It's, in many ways, nothing like that dragon cancer. And so not at all what people expect our studio to create. But for us, it feels like, can it tell just as intimate of a story through humor as we originally told through tragedy? Like, can we, can we hit that? Uh, can we hit those same notes through, through comedy and humor? And can we find those moments of connection and of, of empathy, even in this very silly, funny game? So um, yeah, we're really excited about that and expect it to come out in the next couple months here. Wow, that sounds so cool. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. What do I do? I buy it. I download it. What, what do, I, what do I do? Right. Yeah. So because it's virtual reality, um, you do have to like have a system to play it on. So, um, one of the more accessible systems lately is the Quest Two. So if people have a Quest Two headset, more and more kids have asked for it for Christmas. It's starting to become the thing uh, that people like can experience VR on. Although it, it'll be available on other headsets as well. Um, but yeah, so if you have a VR headset, then that VR headset will already be connected to a store. And so just like you have the App Store on your phone and you can like purchase titles from the App Store, you'll go into the store for your VR headset and then you will be able to purchase area man lives beautiful we'll make sure to include that in the description below awesome. um i want to ask a question you mentioned um that dragon cancer again earlier um i wanted to just loop back because i think you said that they use it in medical training um would you share a little bit about that yes yeah so this was something 
that surprised us initially, um, but that we have heard so many stories of people who say that that they were asked to play the game as part of their nurse training, or even sometimes in medical school, they're asked to play that dragon cancer. Um, and what we have been told by nurses and doctors who've had this experience of playing our video game is that it just helps them to recognize what's going on in the patient's perspective, like how they're hearing things, how they're perceiving it, how it feels to them. Um, because you're there and it's your job, it's your nine to five and, and you have certain things that you need to communicate, communicate well, but, but maybe you're not always thinking through how, how it's being heard and like all the conflicting feelings and emotions that are, that are going through a patient's world and a patient's family's world in that moment. So, um, there's a scene in that dragon cancer where, um, a physician and a nurse are telling Ryan and I that, that Joel's cancer has returned and that he's terminal. Um, and in that scene, they have the conversation with us. Um, but we have a, like a little kids speak and say, where you like pull the trigger and it spins and it says the cow goes moo. And, you know, I would say you're, you kind of play with that at first and then you, it changes pictures to the doctor, the nurse, Ryan and I. So you hear the conversation out loud, but you can point it toward any of the people. And when you do, you hear what's going on in their head and the thoughts they're having in that moment. So, you know, um, the doctor might be thinking through his checklist of like, have I communicated all of these things correctly? Um, but I may be thinking through the months of the year, like, okay, they said two months, but like, that's Christmas or, you know, what, what do we, how do we get this? You know, like you, you just, the kind of the tangents and the trails that each person goes through. And then when it plays, it plays through once that way, and you're listening to the internal monologues and the conversation, and then it plays through again and the whole room fills up with rain and it floods the room and it's loud and there's thunder and everyone's shouting. And it just gives a picture of like, yes, there's the conversation, but then the emotions in that room are so loud that the details are hard to even process. And so I think those types of experiences within the game um, really help doctors and nurses to, to kind of reconsider how that conversation must feel from the other side of, of the room, like sitting in the other chair, what is this experience like? Um, and so, yeah, that's just something that we've kind of heard about is that that is one of the ways that people are, are using the game out in the world. Incredible, incredible. I've heard also your TED talk has been used in classrooms and I haven't used it yet, um, but I, I'll just insert for the moment, people who are listening and watching the description and, and the URL for that will be in the, you know, below to take, you know, 12 or 15 minutes, however long the talk is to just watch it because it was, as I said to you on the pre-call, like one of the most compelling, soulful, life-affirming, memorable, beautiful talks I've ever seen. Um, yeah. So um, thank you, Amy, 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 we're coming to the end of our conversation um, and it's been such a delight to meet you. Um, I like asking my guests at the end of the call, if they would share a story when they were on the receiving uh, end of empathy and what that meant to them. So I don't know if you have anything that comes to mind. Um, absolutely. Uh, there was a moment in my son's illness where um, he tended to have months and months um, after he was terminal where he was doing really well, um, where he would be between recurrences. And, um, you know, when we were in active treatment, we couldn't go on trips or go anywhere because we had to stay so close to the hospital. But 
oddly, like once he had these recurrences and he was terminal, we weren't in active treatment anymore. So if he had months where he was doing well, we could, we could leave, we could go places as a family. We had more freedom than before. So at one point we were planning a trip to New York. We had never been. And there was a university, I think, or maybe it was a studio that had offered to let us use their motion capture technology. And we talked about like, oh, for the game, like we could put on the motion capture suits and really capture Joel's physicality and his movements really well. And we were just really excited to try this technology and to have an excuse to take the family to New York because we'd never been. And the week before we were going to leave, um, Joel had a recurrence of his tumor. And we, we kind of scrambled and tried to see if there was a way to still take the trip and then come back and, and deal with the tumor. Is there a way to still make it work? And it just wouldn't work. And we weren't going to be able to go. And of course, we'd experienced so many disappointments in those years. But this one just hit us hard. It was a hard disappointment. And some people from our church um, decided to surprise us. They, um, they sent a limo to take us to go look at Christmas lights. And that was really fun. We were so excited. We went and looked at the Christmas lights and it was very sweet, but people did sweet things for us a lot. Um, I would tell my kids sometimes like we have a really hard life, but we also have people go out of their way to do very kind things for us because they wish they could make it better for you, but they can't. So this is what they can do. So we're enjoying our Christmas lights and we think that's all there is to it. And then we pull into a parking lot and we start to hear people honking and shouting and honking. And we're looking all around and trying to figure out what is happening. And, um, you know, they're, they're shouting and honking. It's getting crazy. And then we get out and our church had set up a New York evening for us. So the people in the parking lot were being angry New Yorkers and, uh, they, uh, they, uh, uh, they had us like come into the the church and they had a whole like meal set up for us, like a New York restaurant. I think they had a beggar out on the street. I mean, they just, every stereotype you could possibly think of New York, they had worked into this evening for us. And we had a night in New York, um, in Fort Collins, Colorado. And it was, it was just precious to us because we recognized that they took the time to think through how disappointed we were. Um, and that even though there had been so many hard things and some of them so much harder but um, but this one just was personal and they picked up on that enough to, to give us a really special night. And we have since been to New York many times, but that is a memory that I will hold forever because they just, they, they recognized and they cared that that was a hard moment for us and they chose to like step into it with us. Oh my gosh, what a fabulous story. And they did it so quickly too, because, you know, you didn't have very much time. I could just imagine how moved and what, how memorable. I think Tourism New York needs to hear about that story too, because I bet you there'd be like a whole bunch of, you know, applications of the night in New York, outside of New York uh, possibility. Pop up Um, New York. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Would you indulge one more question? Only because, well, thank you. Um, Because as I'm listening to you talk, and it was the same thing when I saw you on the stage doing your TED, um, you've got this like radiant, contagious, joyful, loving, all this like good stuff that emanates from you. I just want to know, um, especially since you've had such a, a loss, um, and I'm so sorry you lost Joel. Thank you. Um, yeah. How, 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 what's your, what's, what do you do that keeps you in such a, you know, place of beauty? Goodness. That is such, such a good question. Um, you know, I mean, there is a lot about what we experience that that has forever changed my perspective. Um, 
I will always say it made most hard things feel less hard after going through this, like my bar of what is truly a bad day has gone way, way up. (laughs) So there's a lot more that I can brush off and can live with and can, um, find, you know, the joy in, and, and, and that just happens naturally, um, when you go through something that is really difficult. Um, but if I'm honest, I, I, I think that it just comes down for me probably to just kind of my, my faith center, like, and, and that's a little bit tricky even to talk about right now. There's a lot in the last few years that has had me questioning and shifting and changing. Um, there's a lot about, I mean, our, our video game talks a lot about our Christian faith. So, um, we are Christians, but losing Joel really shifted some stuff for us. There are a lot of things that we had to readdress and go, I don't know about that part. And I'm not sure our theology was right. And actually when we say these things, I'm not sure that's as loving as we think it is. So there's a lot we had to unpack. And then the last few years, uh, there's been even more, (laughs) there's been so much in the world that makes me go, I don't know anymore. Like I, I am kind of, um, readdressing and, and re-engaging faith in a different way. Um, and yet through all of that, through all my questions, through all the ways that I'm deconstructing and reconstructing through all the things that I say, you know what, we've gotten it wrong and we have not been as loving as we should be. And, and there are so many missteps and I'm just personally owning a lot of that and saying, it's not enough to say, well, the system's sometimes bad, but we're good. I have to go. No, like if I'm a part of the system, I have to own the ways that, that, that faith has not always like served humanity well. Um, so I'm doing all of that and it's all a mess. I mean, genuinely, it is such a mess. But in me is a life and a love that I don't know how to explain any other way, apart from just saying that I I do think that there's a spark of the spirit of God alive in me. Um, and even with all the junk that is messed up and broken and that I want to rearrange, I go, what I can't deny is that spark of life. And so it's one of those things that I can't really personally take credit for, but to say that something came alive in me through my faith. And that even as I readdress some things and change some things, that's the part that goes, oh, there's something in this that I just hold on to and that I believe and that will never change. And, and honestly, it makes me feel really comfortable being okay with mystery and having all kinds of questions and re-engaging and readdressing everything because I go, oh, all the rest of that can change. I feel the life inside me. So, so those parts that I need to like do all the scary work of deconstructing, that feels okay to me because there's something that feels very real and I'm not afraid that I could destroy it by asking the hard questions and shifting some of my theology and beliefs around that. So that's kind of a muddy question answer and maybe a little vague, but hopefully, I mean, I could, I could be more blunt, but so much of it is in process. And so much of that is because of, of Joel, of losing Joel, that it made me think of other people. I mean, it, it sparked that empathy that you talk about where I go, oh, there's people we haven't been paying attention to and their suffering has not mattered to us and it needs to. So yeah, um, yeah, hopefully that kind of answers your question. It so does because whether you call it love, whether you call it God, whether you call it the generative force that gave life to the universe, whatever, it shines so bright in you. Aww. I just wanna thank you so much. I think you must be a great mom and a great friend and a great daughter and a great wife. And I- I am so happy to know you and to have met you. Well, thank you, Anita. That is just so precious to hear. I will treasure that. And it was so lovely meeting you too. And I love conversations like this. So thank you so much for 
inviting me to have this conversation with you and for having these conversations with people. We need so much more of this type of conversation. So I'm just honored that, that you have invited me to this thing you're doing because I'm really excited about it. Beautiful. Well, thank you everyone who was watching and listening. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grant Here and International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit International.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.